Hey, I've been here for a little over a year, and it sure, I've been here as a praise leader too before, but sure it's kind of nerve-wracking standing here to preach before you guys. <laughs> I'm glad that there's like a bright, like a spotlight right in my eyes, so I can't really see you. <laughs> All right, guys, so those, for those of you who don't know me yet, um, my name is David, David Chung, and I'm a church planting resident here at City Church. Um, since last January of 2023, I've been in this church. I was a part of the church as a church planting resident for the people group of a second-generation Korean-Americans in North Georgia, North Georgia area. Um, the the second-generation North uh, the, the Korean Americans who live in, 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 I guess, North Georgia area, numbers quite high. I've been many different places since I became a, a um, pastoral staff since the seminary school or whatnot. Um, I've been to, to, to different, bla- uh, different places, but I've never seen a place where the Koreans actually took the second largest minority group in a certain demographic area. Um, and I, when I came down to Georgia, I didn't come to actually plant here. God somehow led me to do that um, in the last two or three years or so. But I learned that in 2020 census, um, they said there, there, there are about 120 Korean Americans living in and around Gwinnett County alone, um, which was kind of amazing because right above Korean Americans in Gwinnett County alone, there were Hispanic Americans, and they numbered around 160,000 people. Um, since then, I've heard that there, were, there have been many Korean Americans moving into this Georgia area. So we're kind of guesstimating. So it, was, it includes the registered people that were numbered into the census, including the ones who are not registered into the census. We're guessing there's somewhere around above 160,000 Korean-Americans living in, in Gwinnett area or around Gwinnett area alone. That's a quite large number. And out of the Korean, Korean-Americans, the one thing that's kind of unique about Korean is that Koreans are very heavily Christian. So back in the 90s, um, we're numbered more than actually well over 50% of Korean and Koreans in Korea uh, identify themselves as Christians. And uh, the, for the longest amount of time, um, Korea was the second largest missionary-sending country in the world right next to America. And the number of churches in America that kind of shows us, not America, North Georgia alone, that kind of shows us that. When I told this to Jim, uh, one of our, our current elders, uh, he was really surprised. I was kind of surprised, too, when I found out. Um, to, and today, um, just in North Georgia alone, so like right around Atlanta and then above, uh, like north of, of, of Atlanta, um, there are, they say, a little bit over a 400 Korean-American churches that are worshiping with us right now in the, in the area of North Georgia. And that was shocking to me. It was, it was a pretty large number. Um, but then I found out before the pandemic, there actually were more than 600 Korean churches that were actually placed in North Georgia alone. Um, so we kind of, during the pandemic, lost a little over 200 um, churches, Korean-Americans. 
So Korean Americans did a great job at maintaining their faith when they came to America. As a matter of fact, they did a great job at witnessing because when Korean Americans came to America as an immigrant, um, the first place they looked to find their Korean food back in the day, and then the people that the people group that they feel more comfortable with were in Korean churches. So people who came as an immigrant in America couldn't help but to look for Korean churches, and then they will be plugged into Korean churches, and they later became Christians. And during that time, many second-generation Korean Americans, um, basically their children of the first-generation Korean Americans, um, they grew up in the same church. And then the first-generation immigrant of Korean Americans did a great job of raising their kids up in the church. But I think we failed in a way where we kind of didn't help the next generation group to actually either assimilate to the culture of Korean American churches or help them to establish their own church in their, in their, in their cultural group. So we lost so many of the second generation Korean Americans. And when I was, while I was still in seminary, I helped out one of the, church, the local churches in Raleigh, North Carolina. And when I shared this vision, to start a church that is specifically for the second-generation immigrant group of Korean-Americans. And then I told them why there was a segregation between the first-generation immigrants versus the second-generation, their children's generation. The church pastor told me that, hey, what, kind of, what, what method would you like to use to do that? And I told them. And then he said, hey, can you help us to start that platform in our church? And then he said, you know, you guys are not the only ones who are actually losing the next generation. And I learned that we're having the same problem in American local churches. Um, we don't see a whole lot of, I guess, high schoolers. We lose a whole bunch of them during their college years. While they're still young adult singles, we lose a whole bunch of them. When I first came to City Church, that was one of the main things that I noticed. I didn't actually recognize many single young adults in this church. Now, there are very few of us. No, I didn't see many of high schoolers in our church when I came. It looked very similar to what we are having trouble with in a Korean-American church, right? Um, but then anyways, that became my calling. So I am planning on planting a Korean-American church for their children, the English-speaking second-generation Korean-Americans, in Duluth on a beautiful highway like, you know, uh, Elder Dustin has shared with you guys. And the church name that I will be calling it will be Legacy Church. And I, I chose the word legacy as a ch- our church name because I feel like this church has such a big calling to reach out to our next generation with the gospel legacy that we received through Jesus Christ. Right? So that would be an appropriate name for me, I thought. Um, if God actually gives you a heart to financially support this church plan, you can do that through City Church's website. And if you actually give through the Davis Church plan, then it supports our church. Now, having done with the, 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 my personal introduction, uh, let's dive into our text today. I'll be speaking from the book of Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. Verse 1 to 7. I would like to begin with reading the scripture together. If you have your Bible with you, let's open it to chapter number 6 of the book of Acts. If you don't have your Bible with you, we can look at the screen. And I'll be reading from ESV version. It says, verse 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenistics 
uh, Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned, which means apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of, of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the, uh, the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, the Prochorus, um, Nic- uh, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of, of Antioch. These they sat before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became um, obedient to the faith. And this is the word of the Lord. Um, When I was first asked to preach from chapter 6 of the book of Acts, I was asked to preach the entire chapter of the book of uh, chapter 6. Um, but starting from verse 8, if you, if you kind of read through it, you'll see the number of the verse 8 and on of chapter 6 is well connected actually to chapter 7, because it talks about Stephen, right? So I'm going to let Pastor Billy preach to you guys for the rest of the chapter, <laughs> including the chapter 7, and I'll just preach the first part of the chapter 6. Um, our text opens up with, now, in these days, and this tells us that since the Pentecost, that the growth of a church did not stop. Because right after now, in these days, it talks about how the church was growing. In the previous chapters, it tells us how the apostles performed signs and miracles, and it attracted a lot of people uh, to their gospel teaching. This is exactly what Jesus did during his ministry. But in the previous chapters, we see a development of something even more and greater than a larger crowd. We see the development of a church community. And in today's text, we see the growth becoming something overwhelming for the apostles to handle by themselves. Apostles performing of signs and miracles and good preaching created a crowd, but it was the loving dynamic of the people of the church that created the community. The first generation of Jerusalem church was well known for its radical teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its church's, uh, church's outrageous love for its people. One of the major ways that they loved their people was through giving the essential needs for their widows and orphans. So that's what they're talking about. The issue that we see in, our, in, the, in the text today is basically through their giving ministry to the widows and orphans. We, already, we kind of already learned how the church funded this, this ministry to maintain it. We're told that the people actually even sold their belongings and, and even their properties to actually support the ministry as well. This helping of the orphans and widows was, great, was God-commanded ministry for the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, but this ministry was totally neglected by the religious leaders in the New Testament. If you know anything about the Israeli history, most of the Jews who are 
by the Syrians and the Babylonians uh, as a slave in the, in the year around 600 BC. Though they were for, uh, forced to live in, in another country, many of them actually desired to live their last days in their motherland. So during the, time, the New Testament time, there were a lot of people, towards the end of their lives, they actually moved back to Jerusalem, and they actually settled down in the, in the, the city of Jerusalem to try just to live their last days, right? But somehow, as the time goes on, when their husbands die, there were a lot of widows that ended up staying in the church, and it was the church to take care of them. And this dynamic actually became a problem from Jerusalem in our text. Today, as we look at the, the chapter 6 of the book of Acts, I would like to share how a healthy church like even the Jerusalem church identifies their problems and learn how health, uh, a healthy church should handle those problems so we can become, actually learn and become a healthy church ourselves. The first thing that I want to look at is that, that the believers should be able to identify the presence of our enemy in our church. This Jerusalem church in the Bible is a model church for a healthy church. When a church planters like me pray and seek to actually see an ideal church, a healthy church to actually follow after, learn after, in the Bible, we actually study the book of Acts and we try to find those, those answers from studying the Jerusalem church that we see today. However, even this ideal, ideally healthy church seems like that they had a problem of division. In this church, there, there were Hebrew Jews who were the descendants of the Jews who stayed in the Jerusalem, who actually managed to stay within the Jerusalem when Babylonian came and actually destroyed um, the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah and actually took everybody away. There were some people who actually ended up staying. And then the Hebrew Jews that we see in the text are the ones, the descendants of, who, of the ones who actually ended up staying in, in Jerusalem. They had a strong pride of being the ones who actually remained in Jerusalem because they were the ones who maintained the tradition. They were the ones who maintained the religion. They were the ones who actually were teaching about the, the, the Jewish religion. And it seems like their fellow, the, the fellowship was separated away from the Hellenistic Jews, according to our text. They were the Jews, that, the, the Hellenistic Jews, they were the ones who were actually taken away as a captive and who actually lived their entire life in another country. And then after that, they actually later came to join the church after Jesus went up heaven and then disciples actually started the church. They actually came down and joined the church. And they were the ones who were known as Hellenistic Jews because they were more familiar with the Greek culture. It is easy to jump to conclusion and think that this division was created out of a hate from one another, but I don't think we have enough evidence for that. However, we see our human tendency to create cliques even in this early stage of a church. We have, ten, we have a tendency to look for people we feel more comfortable than others in a group based on our ethnicity, share of interest, and age of our kids, and etc. For the Church of Jerusalem, it seems like the cause of division from, for them was based on the people's language and cultural background preference. The church I am trying to plant has a very similar problem. Um, as I explained to you before, as the, the, our current American churches in America, as we're planted, 
um, as the, we kind of grew in number or whatnot, and as more people actually immigrated to America over the last, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years, um, first-generation Korean-Americans did a great job establishing their church. Like I said, just in North Georgia alone, there are more than 400 Korean-American churches. Um, however, what they actually had a big problem is, was that as their children grew up, they had a, a like very strong division between the two. Because the first generation Korean Americans prefer speaking in Korean. And their children's generation began speaking in English. So their preferred language was different. And now the Korean Americans, though they live in America for a good amount of time, their children actually grew up in American church, in American, uh, not American church, American schools and American society. So not only is their preferred language English, they're very Americanized in culture. So they're separated. So first generation seem like they don't understand the second generation. Second generation seem feel like they don't, you know, they're not understood and they are not willing to try to understand the first generation. And if you think about it, this division was so strong enough that it, the people are divided to a point. The second generation, they basically left the first generation Korean American church, and then they don't really actually come back to the church today. To a point, people like me have to create a church just on their own culture. And this happened between only the first generation and second generation of immigration. And if you look at the people that we're looking at in our text today, they have lived a 600 years of immigration life. So if you think about it, the division had to be very clear. And the division had to be very, very difficult for them to handle. And when our enemy, Satan and his demons, his soldiers, when they saw that division happening in the church, they did not let it go, but they used it to attack the church. And what basically happened was that the number of people joining the church increased in a rate that they could not handle. So as their ministry of distributing the mostly food, but the daily needs of the widows... For some reason, the Hellenistic Jews, the widows of the Hellenistic Jews were overlooked. And they were not given or were taken care of with the, their daily needs from the church. And as that happened, the enemy plants the, the, seed of the, the seed of a bitterness in the church of the Hellenistic Jews. Or the people of the Hellenistic Jews in the church. To create, a discrimin the, to create discrimination. And we see that in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, To be alert and sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring, roaring, roaring lion looking for someone to devour. When we see this verse, we may think that the devil attacks God's people in a vicious attack in a supernatural disaster or the severe series of misfortune in our lives. We actually think of the, the way that the, our enemy, that the demon attacks us or the people, we actually immediately quickly jump into the thinking about how they attack our family, our health, our fortune, and whatever that we have saved, our relationship in our lives, and, or uh, the disaster that, that we may see in our lives. But actually, if you look at the Bible, um, the, the tactic our enemy loves to use and uses the most of the time is deception. 
Actually, the definition of the word Satan means deceiver. And here's kind of why, why Satan loves to attack, especially the believers. In all the glory of our enemy, Satan enjoyed in heaven before he fell. There was only one thing that he really did not have that he wanted so badly. And that was to be like God. Out of all the glory that he enjoyed in heaven, only thing that he really wanted outside of that was to be like God. And in his effort to become like the Most High, he gets condemned by God and he receives his punishment to eternal death in heaven. However, God gives the likeness of God as a gift to another creation, which is us, the people. Because we were created to be the image bearer of God. And if that is true, it is very understandable how he, the, the devil hates Christians so much. But there is something else he hates even more, which is the church, a church becoming more like Christ as a collective body of Christ. Because as a church, we can do so much more for God, and we can do so much more damage against our enemy, the devil. When the devil sees believers living in an obedient life in Christ, he constantly lies to a person to cause that person to doubt the promises of God. Our enemy, the devil or the Satan, doesn't make us actually sin against God. Did you guys know? We often, when we think about the sin, we actually try to jump into conclusion very quickly and say that it was Satan who did it. It wasn't me, it was Satan, right? But if you actually look at it, Satan never makes us to sin against God. He only tempts us to sin. We do the sinning ourselves. If you see the chapter 3 of Genesis, God confronts Adam about the sin against God. And Adam responds. And like how we see it, um, Adam kind of points at Eve and they say, the woman that you gave me made me do it. Right? And then now God confronts Eve, hey, why did you do that? And it was, it was that little serpent of, of, of thing that you created, that thing kind of tempted me to do it. And God confronts the serpent, who was the devil, hey, why did you do that? Guess what Satan does? Guess what the serpent does? He doesn't say anything. I didn't do it. That was his attitude. She did it. He did it. I didn't do anything. Only thing I did was I just talked. I just tempted. And that's how the, the fall began for mankind. And that's the very same tactic Satan uses against God's people today. He doesn't really make us sin. He just tempts us to, um, us to sin ourselves. So in the same way, enemy lies to the believers in the church to plant the seed of bitterness in us. And this bitterness can grow over time, and the church can be severely divided or broken because of the bitterness. I think Jesus really knew this about our, our, our tendency 
Uh, of course, he knew. All right, because if you look at John chapter 17, it records Jesus' last long prayer before he was captured to be crucified. And he, he prays a series of different things, but at the very end of his prayer, he prays about us. He prays for the people who will be in the church after his disciples, which is us, right? And one of the major things, if not the major thing that Jesus was concerned that he was just praying so hard about is the division of the church. He was concerned over our division. So he knew it very well. D.L. Moody once said this, I have never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. The fruit of the devil's spirit is bitterness among God's people because he divides the church, and the divided church stops functioning as God's church in this world. And if this is true, what can we do to battle this bitterness? You know, bitterness is something that we may try so hard to fight against it on our own, with our emotions, with our thoughts, with our you know, physical actions. We can try to fight it all we want. But bitterness is something that you will have the hardest time battling it against. And the main reason why it is because the, the battle of this uh, battle of, of, of what is uh, battling to what is spiritual can be done with our own will of flesh. And the heart of bitterness is a spiritual attack from our enemy. So it requires us to specifically pray for our bitter heart. When the Holy Spirit intervenes in our heart, the forgiveness becomes easier. Because he reminds us that we are a forgiven people too. While we were still sinners, Christ loved us to die for us. Do pray about it in your early stage of bitterness if you can. Not only is it, is it easier for you to forgive when the bitterness is still new and fresh in your heart, but you can save yourself from letting the bitterness hurting you. You know, bitterness is actually more, is more destructive to you than the people that you are actually bitter about. You know, most of the time, most of the time, people you are bitter with, they actually don't even know that you're bitter. So longer you let your bitterness dictate how you feel, more you will struggle with all the negative emotions that grow in your heart because of it. And the longer you let those negative emotions influence your daily feelings, more you can find yourself being hostile to other people around you in your life. You know, even our secular um, you know, hospital tells me this. Johns Hopkins Medicine says this. It says, studies have found that the act of forgiveness can reap huge reward for your health, lowering the risk of a heart attack, improving cholesterol levels and sleep, you know, reducing pain, blood pressure, levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. Maybe I have some forgiveness issues, because I struggle with some of those. <laughs> when you let your heart get dictated by the negative influence of bitterness, it doesn't only hurt you spiritually, but it also 
causes all kinds of mental health problems. Please forgive, please forgive not because someone is forgivable, but because you are a forgiven person. On that Christ-like spirit, God can build a healthy church and this healthy church community. And now we kind of identify the problem. Let's see how the church of Jerusalem reacted to this problem. I think they did something amazing that we all can learn from. From our text, we see how even the most healthy church can be tempted by the enemy. What seems to be more important is, though, uh, rather than actually identifying and learning and, and, and you know, seeing the temptation of the enemy, um, is in a healthy church is actually to learn how to deal with that, that, that problems that we see. Um, our enemy attacks every God-honoring church. As a matter of fact, more temptations and attacks from the enemy you see in a church, more healthy the church is in the eyes of God. Did you guys know? It's actually not the problem less, conflict less, struggle less church that are actually healthier in the, in the eyes of God. It is actually the church that actually has struggles with the bigger problems, more struggles and more hardships that actually is the sign of the church being a healthy church. It is because our enemy does not care for the church if, uh, if the does not care if the church actually does a great job of building the church or becoming big or large or becoming popular in the community or not. Our enemy really does not care about that. Only thing that our enemy cares about is that if the church or a church actually worships God and honors God in the way that God honors them back. Our enemy only cares if we worship our Lord right or not. It's like a shared. Our enemy, the devil, hates a healthy church. Hates a church that actually has the image of God. And when, it, when they see a church that actually does the thing right, and when they see a church that is so healthy, they're worshiping God and honoring God in the right way, the first thing that they do is attack the church. Because other churches, if they're actually failing at worshiping God in the right way, there's no business for the, the devil or our enemy to go in and actually stir that up. Because sometimes, actually very often, those hardships and difficulties that the devil stirs up in a church actually brings the people back to Christ. So if we actually see more of a negative things, more of a hardships and difficulties that are happening within the church, know that it is the devil, our enemy, who are at work which is a sign that tells us we're doing something right. We're glorifying our God in the right way somehow. Now going back to the text. When the enemy disturbed the Hellenistic Jews and promoted them to be bitter toward the Hebrew Jews, it wasn't a noticeably strong bitterness. It was rather a small nagging bitterness that began a quiet gossip. The word complaint that we see in verse 1, the original Greek word for that was a gaguzmo. And the meaning of gaguzmo is murmuring. 
So when we see the verse 1, we could kind of, easily, kind of easily conclude that it was a loud complaint. People are kind of rising up against the church leadership, coming, knocking on the doors of the apostles and complaint. It wasn't that. It was people kind of going behind the, the scene on the corners of the churches, and they gossiped. They just talked among themselves. So what was likely that has happened was that as they actually had a little murmuring around the corners of a church among the Hellenistic Jews, someone who were kind of walking right by them overheard them. It was a small talk, but they heard them. And then they immediately went to the apostles and told them that. Then in verse 2, we see how they jumped right into the problem. It was a small gossip. In a rapidly growing church, it is really easy to kind of overlook a small gossip. When the number of people coming, to, coming out to the church, every, it was every day in our text, but let's say even every week, increased by the numbers of hundreds, the little gossip happening among 20, 30 people in different corners could be not, not that important. However, the apostles quickly jump onto this problem and form another form of a church leadership, and they let the people of the church choose who qualify for the leadership. Then we see seven names chosen by the people of the church in verse 5. And when you look at the name, something I think is amazing how that happens is that we see that all seven names that were actually mentioned to us or the Hellenistic, they were all Greek names. Which means they chose seven Hellenistic Jews to take on the next leadership after apostles. This is actually the creating moment of a deaconship. So only the, actually the very first of a church leadership that was chosen by the apostles was this. And judging by how it was the Hellenistic Jews who were actually rising up against the church or who actually mistreated them, they thought, we can kind of see the church leadership had a stronger tie with the Hebrew Jews, right? But what ends up happening is that when people recognize the fact that it was the, Hel- the, the Hebrew Jews who might have actually made the mistake, they actually come together to choose seven Hellenistic Jews to actually take care of the problem. To them, who takes the leadership really wasn't that big of a, a deal to them. To them, the, the, the church's recognition for the people within the church really wasn't any, any a big of a deal for them. Only thing that mattered to them is that how they love people right. Only thing that mattered to them, the entire church, is that how they demonstrate the love of Christ in the right way. When God's people are called to love others, it requires us to love with an intention. Jesus didn't call his followers to love only those who are lovable. What makes Jesus' love love the radical is that he loved the unlovable. 
Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't love us because we are sinless, but Jesus loved us despite our sinfulness. There may be people who need our care and our love among us. Some people may need some physical help, maybe some financial help, and some people may need some simple greeting when you see them with a smile. Church is a place for our, fel- uh, our fellowship, yes. But before we enjoy our fellowship, church is a place where the unbelieving and the hurt people find the love of Jesus Christ. God called us to be the vehicle for that love. And to, dem- uh, to demonstrate that love, we have to be more intentional in being sensitive to recognize those people who need our love. Jesus first loved us with a clear intention. Jesus left all the glory of heavens, or heaven's throne, to be with us. The Son of God who created the entire universe with the simple spoken phrase of let there be, became an infant with the human limit, all, all, all the human limitation, only to demonstrate his love for us through his death on a cross. Sometime long ago, before I was a seminary student, I, I heard a preacher preach this on a radio, and I felt like it was a huge like, hammer behind my head. It was such a big shocking word. What he said was that if Jesus came down to save those people who actually qualify to meet the righteousness that Jesus upholds, if he actually picks those who are lovable, who are savable, None of us would be saved. And now it's our turn to follow that love. I want to end my sermon with this. If you look at the book of Revelation chapter 3, um, in, in, in that, those chapter 2 and 3, Jesus compliments and rebukes Seven different, church, seven different churches in modern-day Turkey. Now, before Jesus showed the apostle John what is to come before the final end of the world, he shows John how the, he stands outside of the, his church because the church of Laodicea, which is the seventh church he mentioned, will not open the door for him to welcome him in. And the reason Jesus told this, uh, this church that it is, its door was closed from, inside, from the inside was that because they had a lukewarm faith. Not hot, not cold, but lukewarm. What seemed to make the church of Jerusalem different than the, the church of Laodicea is how passionate they were in caring and caring for and loving one another. Believers today are often identified as consumer Christians. It means that, the, that what many Christians look for when they go to a church is how well that they are being served by the church. As a matter of fact, when I was still in seminary at Southeastern, I was told that the number one reason why the churches split or churches break, I was really shocked when I heard this, was that the music style was not on their style. They, they could not agree with the music style of the worship. And that's the number of reason why the church split or church breaks and closes the door. 
And the truth is, actually, when you look at the churches today, most of them, most of the churches today, actually places their ministry focus on, the, on meeting those needs of people's desire the most. They try so hard to find out what people might want from the church, and many churches bend over backwards to try to meet those preferences of people. But when you look at the church attendance today in America, it is on a very steep decline. They say for the first time since the, 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 this country was founded, the United States is not a Christian nation anymore. We're not the majority anymore. And though the serving the need of the people in the church is very important ministry for us to for us to be care, uh, caring about. And then it is a ministry that we have to really focus on. Maybe in doing so, we're doing something wrong. Maybe we're looking at the wrong place to gain our vibrancy of our spirit and to find our joy as a Christian. If you look at the book of, uh, uh, book of Acts chapter, seven, uh, chapter 6, verse 7, you actually see how, how our text ends today. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Their love for Christ and their love for one another, their zeal to love and help and care for their people in the church community, that built the church, and they made the church so vibrant. Maybe it's not the church program that helps us to grow and mature as a Christian. Maybe it is us to stop loving one another. Maybe it is our lack of effort to try to forgive those that, people that, are, that we're bitter with. Maybe that's what's causing us to not mature and grow as a Christian. You know, when you actually look at the Bible, we learn that by church is not a place where actually we are called to receive and receive and receive. Church in the Bible actually is, is pictured as action entity. If Jesus Christ is the head of a church, we are the body of the church. We're called to act upon the callings and the direction of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe at some, maybe at some point, as, as a believer, as a Christian, as the body of Christ, maybe we stopped loving, maybe we stopped caring, maybe we stopped serving. Maybe we started just seeking our greatness in how people recognize us. Maybe we started just seeking our, our glory in how the church serves me. But I actually forgot the fact that we are here and God called us to love others in the place of Jesus Christ. And we lost the meaning of what it means to be a believer and a Christian. And we started walking away from church, started walking away from our faith, 
and we started walking away from the vibrant dynamic of a church. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He said, anyone, anyone can be great because anyone can serve. I hope you got that from the Bible. And to be a mature believer, to restore our joy in our hearts, to actually enjoy coming out to the church and to just be vibrantly just, just filled with joy because we, our worship is so great comes from us restoring our heart of loving one another and maybe experiencing that love from one another. This is the beginning stage of the Lent. And I think it's a great time to kind of stop everything that you're doing and step away from your busyness of life and focus on how God loved you so that you can love others better. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for choosing us to be your children. Father God, we thank you for loving us so much to a point where you died on a cross, a sinner's death. As we come together as one body, as we bow our heads before you, would you restore our hearts in you? Would you restore the love of this church in the love of Jesus Christ? As we, Lord Father, approach the season of Easter, would you help us to, to find our joy because we find your love so close to our lives? And would you, Lord Father, just enlighten us in our heart through your Holy Spirit so that we become more loving to one another? We pray that, Lord Father, this world will recognize us not because we have such a great program and so many people coming out to this church and we have a great-looking building, but that people will recognize us because we love like Christ. People will recognize us because we're so different and radical in that way. So through us, people can come to you. Through us, your love may be known. And through us, more people will come together seeking out for your glory and love. We thank you in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.